you know, there's so many new and emerging areas that attorneys have to be familiar with. I mean, even something like, you know, cryptocurrency or NFTs, you know, a, a family law attorney may have to be familiar with something like that because it might be an asset that has to be distributed. An estate planning lawyer has to be aware of, you know, people's social media accounts to give them guidance on how to um, dispose of those assets at death. So there's um, lawyers have to keep abreast of all the changing law on a whole bunch of different technology topics because things move much faster than than they used to. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Answering Legal's Everything Except the Law podcast. I am your host, Nick Worker. If this is your first time tuning in, this is the podcast where we share expert advice on all the parts of running a law firm that attorneys weren't exactly trained for back in law school. Uh, now, since a large portion of our listening audience is made up of solo and small law firm lawyers, uh, we wanted to produce an episode specifically for them and address some of the biggest issues that they are currently facing. Uh, my guest for this episode is someone who knows the small law firm life very well. Not only has she been running her own solo practice since 1993, but she is the creator of My Shingle, the longest running blog on solo and small law firm practice. Carolyn Elephant is here with me today. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, they say never meet your idols, but uh, <laughs> I'm a little starstruck. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, so... <laughs> Besides me, right? I'm sure a lot of our audience is already familiar with you, but for those who may not be, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background um, on working and writing about the law. Sure. So, uh, as you said, I have had my own practice for uh, since 1993. I've throughout that time I've been the principal attorney, though I've had associates and I've had staff. Um, administrative staff. Um, from time to time, I've had of counsel, but I have been the sole uh, attorney owner. Um, I started writing my shingle in 2002, the end of 2002. So I'm going on, it's going to be my 20th anniversary. And the reason I started it is because I felt that there was really a gap in the market. I mean, back in those days, when blogs were just coming out and you just had um, self-publishing, you mostly had just these large um, media uh publications like um, American Lawyer and the ABA Journal, and you didn't have a focus on what solo and small firms were doing, encouraging people to start firms or just sharing what it was like to be running a practice. Uh, it's So I think it's funny. A little bit of my background is um, I've been working uh, with Answering Legal almost, I want to say it's going on nine years, so it's been open for 10. And uh, and I recognize that same problem, right? Is that there weren't a lot of law firms or people working in the legal profession who were aware of um, sort of the things that they could do to help their law firms run better or, or I don't know, anything to, to make the, the business of practicing law easier for themselves. And so when I stumbled upon my shingle, just trying to get educated myself so that I could better help my customers, um, I was, uh, it, it provided a great resource, even for me as someone who doesn't practice law, because I was able to understand how to address some of those challenges. So I want to talk about that, right? So even with all of the challenges, 
do you still believe that the life of a solo or, or a small law firm attorney can still be a rewarding one? And, uh, and if so, what aspects of running that type of practice do you find to be the most rewarding? So first, I do still believe after all this time that um, for many people, ownership or owning a law firm, whether it's a small firm or solo practice or something that you grow into an empire, you really, you can't, you can't go wrong. Um, careers are very fluid too, and nothing is forever. But um, I think that most people who start firms really don't have many regrets about having done it because you have control. And I mean, law, law is difficult, whether you're working for a big firm or working for yourself, just dealing with judges, dealing with clients, dealing with the pressures and all the intricacies that you have to pay attention to. So that's hard enough when you can't control your schedule or when you don't have the ability to do these, to take cases in the direction that you want to take them, it makes it even worse. And so ownership allows you to do that. Um, there are lots of ways to deal with the struggles um, of, of work and to grow your firm if you, you know, are willing to delegate and take advantage of a lot of the tools. And of course, today, technology really does so much and speeds up so much of what used to take hours to do. I mean, just something as simple as sending out an invoice, you know, back in the in the early 90s, it would take a weekend to kind of put together a, a, a table or a spreadsheet and reconcile the the time. And now it's it's a matter of seconds. It's really a click of a button to get an invoice out and have it paid electronically. So the money shows up in your account, you know, a few days later. So it's just things like that have made the practice of law and running your own firm much easier. So I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, and it's funny because I've, I've only seen 10 years of it um, because I only entered this, uh, I don't know, what do you call this? industry profession um, yeah. 10 years ago. Um, and, and I mentioned this before, right, is I learned a lot from, from reading your publication, but I think one of the things that's so great about um, what you do in my shingle is that it sort of, it, it sort of cures that terminal uniqueness um, that a lot of lawyers face, right, is that they think that they're alone in these challenges, but I think my shingle has sort of let lawyers know that they're not alone in those challenges they face. Um, and based on what you've seen, what do you think, or, or what have you seen um, are some of the, like, what are you seeing? I can't phrase this. Uh, what, what are some of the biggest challenges that solo and small law firm practices have been facing over the past few years? So I think there have been a number of different challenges, and I think it depends on your practice area and also your your philosophy and your target audience. I think that there are some um, solo and small firms who have felt that they faced competition from LegalZoom and document automation, and that has been a challenge for them to figure out what the appropriate market is for them to go after. I think today, Ironically, I think one of the struggles we're seeing, we went from a situation where technology tools were either too costly for solos to take advantage of, or there were just one or two practice platforms. I think today it's a lot of information overload. And I see a lot of solo and small firm lawyers just completely like deer in headlights stymied and getting started because you literally, 
can go into a Facebook group and say, what's your favorite practice management tool and get 15 different responses. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just the practice management part. That's not even, you know, picking out your logo, setting up your website. So I think that we've gone from an information void or technology void to technology and information overflow. And I think that's very difficult, especially for lawyers who are prone to analyze every single aspect of a problem. And that's where a lot of attorneys get stuck or get hung up. It's just figuring out the platform or getting one set up and then moving to something else. And I'm as guilty of that as the next person. I sign up for shiny new things and then I don't take the time to figure out how to use them. So um, so that's a, that's a second problem. And I think the third problem, and I don't know if this is really a problem, is just figuring out what the future is going to look like, how to set up your office, what type of arrangement, is it hybrid, is it all virtual, is it completely in-person, what kind of um, work arrangement is going to allow you access to the best possible staff and also best for <clears throat> your clients. I actually, I wanna ask you, um, I want to ask you what your opinion of legal zoom is because I've, I've personally been running into them more and more, um, lately, I would say over the last like six to eight months, but I've been aware of them for a few years. Um, is there, is there sort of, um, is there a place for both the small law firm and legal zoom or, uh, or is that, or is legal zoom like changing things? Is it like what? Is it changing things for the way that, that small law firms practice? So I have a lot of views. I have always been team competition. Um, I, if my blog, one of the things about blogging for 20 years is you have a record of the body of your work. And I know that back in like 2008, I blogged about this service called We The People, which was kind of like a paralegal enabled form filling service, which had encountered some difficulty and I suggested that lawyers do something like that. Um, with something like LegalZoom, I think that there are ways that lawyers can offer similar types of services as a spinoff, kind of like um, Aaron Levine did with Hello Divorce and other attorneys are starting to do with um, estate planning. Um, the other thing is with something like LegalZoom, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it has gotten to a point when, when it came out, it was very difficult to incorporate a business at a state secretary's office. Now, almost every jurisdiction has something where you can just go to the state secretary's site and you can set something up yourself. Or when LegalZoom started, there weren't that many online ways that you could prepare a will. Now there's like a million ways, including free ways if you want to go that way. And so, um, so I feel like in some ways, you know, LegalZoom has been a victim of its own success. And, you know, in some ways it may be acting as um, a middleman for services that are already out there. So, um, you know, and there may be people who feel like LegalZoom makes the process easier so that they don't have to search around and do it that way. But yeah, but I do think there is room for all of that because, you know, honestly, those types of clients who want the affordability or the ease of use of LegalZoom, they weren't hiring attorneys anyway. So it wasn't a market that many attorneys were serving. That was an incredible insight. I, I, I like the idea that um, whatever LegalZoom is doing right, lawyers can also sort of offer as a, as a service. And it wouldn't, it doesn't take up 
in my opinion, too much time for a lawyer to offer something like that. Like almost, um, what do you want to call it? Like a self-service type thing where it's here, quick, fill out this form, we'll file it for you. And then you don't have to worry about it. Um, especially I think you're right in, in terms of, uh, estate planning and maybe a, like a really quick uncontested divorce, um, to not get too complicated. Um, but I want to, I want to ask you about this because I think that this is something that you have a wide or like a really in-depth experience with is that over the years, um, there have been so many, I want to say necessary mindset shifts that attorneys have had to make, um, whether it's adopting technology or, um, embracing the work from home and, and the hybrid or virtual, uh, law firm. Um, are there any mindset shifts that attorneys can make to, I, I don't want to say increase their odds of being successful, but what are, what are some of the traits or the mindsets that you see most successful solo or small law firm practice owners are, are adopting? So I think with successful law firm owners, I think the first thing is, is that they um, don't let fears get in their way or the fact that something hasn't been done a certain way before doesn't preclude them from taking the particular path that they want to, to take going forward. So I think that's one characteristic of successful attorneys. Um, I've seen attorneys who succeed in niches where they really completely inhabit that niche. Um, you know, it might be, say, a, um, a Hispanic attorney serving Hispanic businesses and she'll, you know, show up on Facebook groups, go to those conferences, um, highlight those clients and really get um, embedded or obsessed with a particular uh, niche. I find like those, those attorneys also um, tend to be very successful. And then I think um, the last group is just, you know, just being focused and focused on things that make money. I mean, it's, it's great to say that you have uh, 50,000 people following you on Instagram, but if they're not contacting you for work and you're not getting clients that way, then, then who cares? Um, a lot of attorneys who I see who have been successful too have just really robust referral networks. Um, and I think that, you know, just cultivating referral networks, I know it sounds very old school and people don't want to hear that referral networking works, but it actually, it actually does also because for all of the Google and the SEO and the social media, I mean, it helps you, it helps flesh out a profile of the attorney, but it's still really hard to find an attorney that way online. I know that when colleagues ask me to find attorneys, I try to get a referral. And if I can't, if I go to Google, I'm as lost as a consumer is. Uh, I love that idea. And, uh, and I have the same, I think that's, that's not a unique, um, thing for business, especially when a lot of law firm clients are not recurring revenue, right? It's just, you know, hopefully, uh, you finish working on the case for that person and the matter is resolved and they don't need to come back to you. And, uh, and so the people that you're looking for are, are often friends with other types of people who need your service and, uh, and referrals are a really cheap and, uh, and sustainable way to get new business. So what, what are some of the best ways that you've seen 
um, attorneys build a referral network? Uh, like what, what does a successful referral network require? I think the first place is just starting close to home and not overlooking the obvious. I mean, reaching out to family and friends from time to time on Facebook, I'll see personal friends post about the work that they do or just let people know that they're looking to, you know, to, to be available to speak at other people's PTA meetings or uh, churches or synagogues uh, on particular topics um, or, or just, so I think just reaching out to family and friends who aren't attorneys as opposed to just going directly to other attorneys, um, but getting to know other attorneys too. I think those are um, two good ways to kind of cultivate uh, referral networks. And also, I guess when you're trying to cultivate networks with attorneys, just provide them information of, of value about what you do, that, that kind of thing. Um, those, those usually seem to be the best way. But like I said, I think some of the most robust networks that I've seen are um, especially like with like mom networks, um, moms networking in PTA groups and uh, other types of affinity groups. Because I mean, in most families, women are the decision makers. And, you know, and of course, if women are single or solo parents, they also by default are the de decision makers. So I see a lot of, um, that, that referral network, I think, is like as effective as like what used to happen on the golf courses, you know, decades ago at Big Law. Yeah, I make very few decisions without my wife, and she gave me permission to say that. Um, <laughs> no, and I think you're right. I think um, one of the best people that I know at building a referral network is a very good friend of mine who sells life insurance, and he's a very, very successful life insurance salesman because... You're right. He doesn't overlook the obvious. Um, he's got all these Facebook friends and he posts these great anecdotal, um, I don't know, what, what would you call them? I guess mini blog posts on Facebook about how he's helped one person and how he made them see that, um, you know, their, their small term life insurance uh, wouldn't be enough to really like help their family move on and explains that, you know, he, he addresses the fears uh, that people have surrounding life insurance. Life insurance is not um, a death policy. It's a, it's a life policy. And, uh, and this guy just, he shares stories about uh, all this, this stuff. And, uh, in turn, I know a lot of people who are also my friends who have bought life insurance from this guy, including <laughs> myself. And I'm very difficult <laughs> to sell things to because I'm a very difficult argumentative person, um, which, which I think might be relatable to people, but it's, it's really about putting yourself out there. I think, um, a lot of lawyers will be like, oh, well, I don't want to be salesy and push this on my friends and family, but if they need your help, they will do it. You're not pressuring I mean, don't right? like, don't push them so hard that they buy things that they don't need, but, uh, putting yourself out there and letting people know that you're available is, is, uh, is a great way to get referrals. Um, yeah. I want to ask you because we mentioned this before is the sort of virtual law firm model that's, I don't know, coming about. And I don't think that there are so many law firms that necessarily need to go virtual, um, but there are benefits to doing so. Um, so I want to ask you what your opinion on this is, is do you believe that most solo or small law firm owners should consider going virtual? Um, 
And, and if they do, do you have any recommendations for them being successful in a virtual environment? So it, it's funny because when I started my firm, in, in some ways, there's just a lot of rebranding. I mean, when I started my firm, um, I do work in the energy regulatory space. And so my role models, at least two of them, there was one attorney who worked from a home office because he had uh, two disabled children and he was able to stay home and watch out for them. And then there was another attorney who had a national practice. And since his clients were all over the country, there's no reason for him to work anywhere else. So in, in my industry, this kind of model had always been out there. Um, and it was something I was accustomed to. And then it was sort of rebranded as being, you know, forward looking and remote or parent friendly. But um, and, and there are some very successful remote or distributed practices. I mean, there's different names for them. Um, I think, you know, I, I think a lot of it depends, first of all, on how you work best. I mean, there are some people who just need an office or a separate place to go to. And during the pandemic, working from home, I think for them, for that category of people was very challenging. Um, some people feel like an office can be the hub of work-life culture and that you can't develop a culture without having an office. But I think that the reality is that if you want to be able to attract the most people, then I think you have to, at least from a worker's perspective, you have to offer remote access as um, as an option. And I think also for clients, I mean, the one thing is, I mean, where, where it's really been beneficial is for clients because people don't want to take time out of their day to have to go to an attorney's office or to meet with an attorney. And, you know, most firms were not offering, um, were not offering weekend hours. So people would lose work time just to see their attorney. So I think this has been something that if you want to capture today's clients, you have to at least offer something remote as an option. Maybe all clients won't take advantage of it, but I think it has to be uh, available to them. We will be right back after this short ad. When a client calls, they're really looking for immediate service. Because we have Answering Legal, we're able to see every client message and we're able to contact our clients immediately. My name is Margot Gaines, and I'm a partner at Gaines & Musico. We started using Answering Legal because we were unable to answer all of our phone calls. Answering Legal has allowed my firm to get hired on numerous clients that we never would have. We get messages throughout the night and on the weekends. Sometimes we're in court or we're dealing with other clients. And because of Answering Legal, my partner and I are able to address any client concerns or any new clients immediately, and it's really increased our business. Answering Legal has allowed us to service our clients in a way that their needs are met and their phone calls are answered, and we're able to spend more time doing the things that are necessary for our clients. I think a few years ago, if you were an attorney that had a home office, it was almost stigmatized as like a, like a bad thing that right, uh, as you were fly by night yeah. <laughs> and maybe you weren't as successful. You didn't have the big fancy office right. in the big fancy building in town. And mm -hmm. now it's, I don't know, some clients 
prefer it that way. Oh, like, oh, he doesn't work from home. He's, you know, I got to go there. I got to take time out of my day. I got to figure out which office to go to on the directory and go on. Uh, it's, it, things are a little bit different now. And that's not to say that people won't choose what's appropriate for them, but it is a little more destigmatized. I think you're right. Um, and I want to talk about this because so I mentioned before, I've been doing this for 10 years. And one of the, one of the topics that has been relentless over 10 years and mostly because it evolves so rapidly is marketing and, uh, and marketing is often just for the cliche, I'll say an uphill battle for smaller mm -hmm. firms, um, because there's a lack of parity in marketing, right? If you have a bigger brand, um, you take up more space just naturally. So what do you think in the current climate uh, is more, it, what makes a successful marketing strategy for solo and small law firm owners um, in this like modern era? What, what are the successful firms doing? So I think, I mean, to generalize this, people who are successful are consistent. So they're picking whatever medium it is works for them and doing it consistently. I know that there's a lot of debate over, you know, whether you can use the same tools for the same kind of practice, some you know, or, or whether, you know, some form of uh, some tool will, will work for some and not work for others. But I think the most important thing is just to always be consistent, whether you're doing estate planning and offering, you know, three webinars a month, telling people about the benefits of estate planning, whether you're a family law attorney, you know, reaching out to local therapists and financial planners a couple of times a month, doing a newsletter that goes out regularly. I think the most important thing is really the consistency and showing up. In terms of, you know, which tools are most likely to be successful, you've really got to pick something that you enjoy, that targets, that is aimed at your target clients, and that is something that you can actually get done. Um, I've been playing around with TikTok. It takes me like a very long time to actually make a TikTok. So, and my target clients are not on TikTok. I mean, I'm just purely experimental there. But um, if my target clients were there, it might not be the best tool unless I could master and get it, get it done a little bit more quickly. Um, but you see people, I know that there are a number of people who have uh, target uh, corporate clients or corporations. LinkedIn is a great medium for them. And you see them on LinkedIn posting every day, leading communities on LinkedIn uh, for other people, you know, Facebook groups. It's just, you just have to, you know, kind of do like a little grid and figure out who your clients are, where they are, where you find them. That's why it's so important to know who your ideal client is so that you can know which tools to use. And I usually suggest to people that they have a portfolio um, of, of different tools. I mean, maybe they want to do paid SEO, maybe some kind of social media platform, and then maybe some kind of newsletter or, you know, sponsorship of events or in-person meetings or things like that. Uh, I commend you for being on TikTok because this podcast is on TikTok. Oh, okay. I am not on TikTok. I am not nearly <laughs> cool enough for TikTok. And sometimes, so like I'll go on and, and scroll and read and I have a blank profile. It's just my name. And I'll see this podcast come up and I'm like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Uh, the producer of the show, he does a great job and he puts it up. But like, I am not clever in it. Thank God for that. Because 
I am not cool enough for that. Seriously, I mean that. So I commend you because I could see you being on TikTok and being more fun than I am. I'm just a boring LL Bean flannel wearing guy. Well, it's, you know, it's becoming a place now where people are starting to look for things. Um, I mean, I know that when I, you know, even a couple of weeks ago, I needed to find a recipe. I have this like phantom tomato bush in my garden that just keeps producing tomatoes. So I just wanted to find a recipe that would use the tomatoes. And I just put that in and I came up with like a whole bunch of things like little 45 second videos. And it was just much easier to use than, you know, even going to Google or to YouTube. So, and I think people are starting to, you know, maybe even search for attorney content there too. And they're actually, it's very interesting about LegalZoom because there's a bunch of people either explaining to other people how to use LegalZoom. Uh, they're not lawyers, they're explaining how to use it. And then there's other people saying, you know, how you shouldn't use LegalZoom be for various reasons. So LegalZoom has kind of, uh, met, if, if you wanted to find information about it, you could find it there on TikTok. I also do find that there's a bunch of, uh, I'll call them cringy, uh, yes. putting out a lot of, uh, I don't even know what to call it. It's just, Sometimes I think they're joking and they're, they're just not joking. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I think that's also why lawyers should be careful is that sure. What you mentioned before, right? You could have 50,000 views or followers or whatever you have on TikTok, Um, but if the content is not serving you and what I mean by that is if you were the punchline of a joke and it's not making you any money, then it's detrimental to your business. <laughs> Um, yeah. no matter how many, I mean, maybe the, I don't know how much, how, how much you get paid for, for getting those views. Um, but I do want, I want to talk about this because this is a, a topic that I, I feel is more important and, and most overlooked is that when you're running a small law firm and you can definitely attest to this as a, as a, I know you're not a small law firm, but you're a, a, a solo attorney, um, who's head of counsel help, um, it can really take a toll on your mental and physical well-being um, if you're not taking care of yourself. So do you have any tips for lawyers based on your experience and things that you've seen uh, that will help them manage their overall wellness? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is, is that you, I, I've heard this said many before, you have to take charge of your firm, run your firm, don't let your firm run you. So to the extent possible, if there are things that you can delegate, um, either administrative things to an administrative assistant or even like some basic legal research projects, even to law students or to recent graduates, just to take that load off or clear it out, I think that can clear up your calendar. And a lot of times lawyers think, well, it just takes me a minute to do this or a minute to do that. But when you add it all up, it still can be significant. Um, and I think the second thing is, is to figure out, you know, one of the benefits again of being remote and the lessons of the pandemic is that you can work in other places. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to be doing the work at the office. You can do it, you know, take breaks, do it at home sometimes, or do it in different locations um, to just kind of give yourself a break. And then the last thing is, is really, I think it's a lot of perspective. I mean, you have, a long life that's independent of your your practice and there's really nothing as important as you know your your health or your family or things like that so i think just trying to remember that and keeping it 
in perspective. Um, and, and of course, you know, if you do experience mental health issues or stress, um, most bar associations have um, the um, mental health advisors or lawyer assistance programs, and you should contact them and take advantage of that. I think that's like one of the best resources that bar associations offer. I agree. Um, and I also, so my mentor's wife is a, I don't, I don't even know how to explain the magnitude of what she does, but she is a, a business coach. Um, and she travels all over the world. She went to, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this actually, but, uh, she goes to other countries and advises governments and, and huge corporations like secret top secret type of stuff, um, in order to help leaders not only lead better, but also take care of themselves, um, in the practice of business better. And, uh, and she's also a lawyer too, she's a very accomplished woman, uh, have a lot of respect for her. And, and I've been having coaching calls with her and we talk a lot about delegating because, um, I delegate a lot of work. And when I'm done delegating that work, I try to find things for myself to do. I'll just search things out and try to get more things done. And, uh, and I was having trouble, um, sort of identifying whether or not that was good or bad, right? If I've delegated this work and I know that it's going to get done, do I do or try to find other things to do in the meantime? And we got to a place where I can't just take up all of my idle time because I have to be expecting that delegated work to come back. So I think lawyers sort of operate this same way is that they'll delegate this work or they'll, I don't know, hand this uh, file off to a paralegal and then they'll start doing busy work. But the whole point of you delegating was to free up your time. So if you've added that one thing on and then you have to wait for the delegate, it, it just doubles the amount of time that you're unavailable. So it's important to recognize when you're creating busy work for yourself, um, I think is what I've learned in that. And uh, so, I know that you've been sort of on top of the legal world um, and covering them for 20 years, almost <laughs> happy, almost anniversary. I'm sure it's coming up soon um, as I can't believe this year is almost ending. Uh, but you've sort of managed to stay ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to the legal profession. So is there anything that you believe right now that solo and small, small firm lawyers should be preparing for or should be aware of when it comes to the future of legal? Yeah, I think lawyers have to definitely ready themselves for the possibility of uh, deregulation or um, less regulation and more non-lawyer professionals being able to take on some legal, uh, to take on some of the legal work. I think they really have to be prepared for that and be able to be ready to capitalize on something like that. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that, um, you know, I think as technology becomes more and more advanced, there's going to be certain things that lawyers are doing today that people will readily do by themselves. I mean, it's kind of like with, with taxes. Um, a lot of people who used to go to accountants now feel very comfortable using TurboTax and maybe eventually using the IRS site since I saw that um, 
there, there's some issues with these autom automated systems charging filing fees. So I think lawyers have to prepare themselves for the fact that, you know, some more basic transactions, like maybe a completely non-contested, uh, uncontested divorce without kids or shared property or very basic wills will be something that people do automatically, or maybe even become something that can be done like through some sort of blockchain transaction. Because, you know, I kind of feel like if a transaction is something that's so routine, even if it's complicated, you, you shouldn't be, you should be trying to simplify the process instead of using technology to just keep up the complexity. So um, I think those are things to watch. And I guess the last thing is just, you know, there's so many new and emerging areas that attorneys have to be familiar with. I mean, even something like, you know, cryptocurrency or NFTs, you know, a, a family law attorney may have to be familiar with something like that because it might be an asset that has to be distributed. An estate planning lawyer has to be aware of, you know, people's social media accounts to give them guidance on how to um, dispose of those assets at death. So there's um, lawyers have to keep abreast of all the changing law on a whole bunch of different technology topics because things move much faster than than they used to. I think that's an incredible insight. And I like that you mentioned uh, the use of blockchain for uh, transactions, because not that I'm an expert in any of that, but it seems like uh, one of the things that uh, blockchain will be able to do very shortly is things called smart contracts, where mm -hmm. uh, like you can't overwrite, you can't like rip up a contract. There can be no, I sue you, we go to court over a smart contract because if the needs of the contract aren't met, it just doesn't pay out. Um, so it's it's just in those terms. And uh, wow, that I never thought about that, but as soon as you said blockchain, I was like, oh yeah, that could go, that could be really crazy in the, in the near future. Um, but Carolyn, I wanna thank you so much. If our viewers have enjoyed our conversation, and they want to continue following your work. Um, and it's been great work over the last 20 years. So I suggest that they do. Uh, where should they go? Uh, the best place to go is to myshingle.com. That has links to all my different social. Um, it has links to various video presentations I've done over the years. So it's everything is, uh, is, is pretty much centralized there at myshingle.com. I would have recommended that too. Um, uh, and I, I just want to seriously thank you so much again uh, for joining me on the show today. I uh, wanted to give a special thank you to all of our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this conversation, and we will be back with another episode of Everything Except the Law soon. Be sure to check out previous episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, the Answering Legal YouTube channel. Uh, links to everything covered in today's conversation can be found in the description of this episode below, including the link to myshingle.com. We hope to see you next time, everyone.